Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. I hope you've chosen a good one, by the way. Those audio device, devices can make all the difference. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, my job during the next uh, 59 minutes is to turn a migraine into a your grain. You're welcome. I'm in London, England, uh, from a beautiful Leicester Square, all dolled up for the nothing that is mid-January in London. Uh, but I, I came over here because some, I, you know, it's become apparent now, I think, to all that the, there are some of us in show business who uh, l- like to dabble from time to time in journalism. And uh, I, I, I guess you could say that I'm one of them. And uh, some sources I had over here, you know, I've been coming here from time to time over the last few years and uh, developed some sources who uh, put me in touch with uh, a gentleman who is, I think, best known around the world as the world's poorest drug lord. His uh, friends know him by the nickname El Chipo. And uh, we were supposed to have had an interview here today, but uh, he decided to stay home and watch the rugby on telly instead. So we'll get on with the rest of the show. Ladies and gentlemen, the uh, methane leak in Southern California in the San Fernando Valley, as if the valley wasn't you know, splendid enough. Now it's got this leak, and it's getting worse. Independent researchers have reported detecting elevated methane levels as far as eight miles from the Porter Ranch, which is where the massive ongoing leak of natural gas is occurring. It's a ruptured well. Ouch. Those don't heal. Uh, at an underground storage facility, it's spewed uh, so far more than 80,000 metric tons of methane into the atmosphere. Just so you know, just so in case you're counting, this is a powerful greenhouse gas. It's the equivalent of like a million cars. But the uh, scientists have now found elevated methane levels well beyond that area, the Porter Ranch area, raising health concerns for people living outside the uh, vicinity of the leak. Inhaling low concentrations of methane, which is the primary component of natural gas, is okay. It's all right, you know. Don't, but don't don't go putting your head in the oven just because I said that. Because natural gas often contains trace elements of other more harmful gases. Benzene, toluene, xylene, all urines. This is what people may be breathing, said uh, an earth and environment professor at Boston University. They're not measuring things other than methane, but there's a legitimate concern. He says that there's that other nasty stuff in there. That's a scientist talking. These challenge assurances, these findings from the Air Quality Management District in L.A., and the state's Office of Environmental Health, that the leak hasn't increased residents' exposure to toxic gases. So you you don't pay your money and you take your choices. The cumulative methane emissions from the leak so far have the equivalent of burning nearly 800 million gallons of gasoline, according to the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, SoCal Gas is uh, still trying to do something to stop the leak. That's very much doing a really... You know, corporations really don't have great uh, gift for mimicry, but uh, Southern California Gas is doing a really good impression of BP uh, six years ago. And uh, so, if you know, just among the reasons to stay out of the San Fernando Valley, add this one. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you hear all the time, not just in the Republican presidential debates, that we don't make anything in the United States anymore, especially anything that lasts. You know, everything's so 
mercurial and ephemeral. Well, we do now have today evidence that we do make something that lasts and lasts and lasts. PCBs were once used in electrical gear, paints, and flame retardants. They were banned from the 1970s onward because of their toxic effect in animals and humans. However, they persist in the environment and are accumulating at dangerously high levels in Europe's killer whales and dolphins, according to scientists. Europe's cetaceans have levels of PCBs that are among the highest found in any of the oceans. A wildlife veterinarian from the Zoological Society of London says, for striped dolphins, bottlenose dolphins, and killer whales, we have mean PCB levels, he means average, mean as an average, not nasty, that are excessive. They're really high, probably the highest in the world right now. Europe is a big, big hot spot, he says. The contamination is so high, some populations of killer whales are facing extinction. This is published in scientific reports. PCBs were banned in the U.S. in 1979 and in the rest of Europe in the late 80s. They have a wide-ranging impact on human and animal health, from links to cancer to suppressing the immune system to causing reproductive problems. They're versatile. They're extremely durable, and despite the ban, they're still plentiful in the environment. So, yes, next time your children ask you, we do make something that lasts. It's called PCBs. Uh, The quote for the weekend comes from Matt Barnes, uh, a scholarly gent who used to play, well, he still plays professional basketball. He just doesn't do it in Los Angeles anymore. He does it in Memphis. And he had an alter, he has a running verbal altercation with uh, his former teammate on the Los Angeles basketball team, the Lakers, because uh, apparently that former teammate, who is now the coach of a New York basketball team, uh, has uh, had a romantic thing with the ex or the strange girlfriend of Matt Barnes. And uh, so there were there were thoughts as the two teams squared off this weekend, uh, and Matt Barnes has been tweeting some nasty stuff about this situation, that there might be some, uh, you know, hanky-panky, or just panky, actually. And um, Matt Barnes dissuaded folks from that uh, sense that anything untoward might happen with these words, which I think not only speak for every American politician who it's just a little too explicit for American politicians to say, but in their hearts they know he's right, and and words to live by on the weekend before Martin Luther King Day. These are the quote. These are the words of Matt Barnes regarding this uh, potential altercation between him and the guy who's hanging with his ex-squeeze. Quote, violence is never the answer, but sometimes it is. Hello, welcome to the show. Yeah, I hear it to the bone, yeah, I 
From London, England, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this, this, this one right here, this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, yes, once again, it's news of the Olympic movement. Still produced by Jim Ebersol Jr., who does not exist. Well... The Wall Street Journal has come on board. They uh, did a big story this week on problems with the Olympics in Rio. Really? One of the first concerns for organizers is whether Brazilians, who don't care much about some Olympic sports, will buy enough tickets 
to meet financial targets. As of last December 31st, less than half of the 4.5 million domestic market tickets had been sold. The organizing committee is depending on ticket sales for to meet 17% of its budget needs. The committee, uh, Olympic Committee spokesman down there, Philip Wilkinson, doesn't sound Brazilian, said the group is comfortable with the sales, quote, given that Brazilian buying habits tend to see tickets being bought closer to the date of events, unquote. Whistling through the what yard? A worker, oh, Olympic budgets are often built to be exploded, of course, says the Wall Street Journal, but these games have been beset by major overruns at a time when the country can ill afford them. Last year, the total infrastructure cost for the games, funded mostly by the federal and local governments, rose to more than $5.5 billion, 25% higher than originally planned. To fight the city's notorious congestion, Rio's notorious congestion, organizers are extending a subway line 16 kilometers, but the state is going to need another $247 million in federal government funds to complete the work, and they're arguing about who's going to come up with the funds. Brazil is also grappling with serious mosquito-borne diseases that so far are outracing officials' efforts to deal with them. As of early December, a record 1.58 million cases of dengue fever were reported in Brazil last year. Chikungunya is mushrooming, too. Most worrisome is a relatively new, fast-spreading virus called Zika. Zika is spreading quickly in Rio de Janeiro State. Rio's mayor promised last year to buy more than a million tickets available for the games and give them away to school children for free. He has not yet done so. But wait, there's more. Not from the uh, Wall Street Journal, from the Associated Press. Brazilian organizers are meeting with sports federation leaders. World Rowing Executive Director Matt Smith already knows what what to expect. He's bracing for news that 4,000 temporary grandstand seats at the rowing Olympic venue won't be built. At the swimming venue, several thousand seats have already been slashed. The world governing body for sailing learned more than a year ago that bleachers it wanted had been ruled out. Reorganizers are scaling down everywhere to eliminate about $500 million. I've been around since Los Angeles in 1984. We haven't been in such a situation where a country that is staging the games is in such a vulnerable situation, Smith of the Rowing Federation said. Hit by cash flow problems, Rio is reducing the use of unpaid volunteers. Transportation is being rejigged. Few competition results will be available on paper. And organizers, having backed away from plans to have athletes pay for air conditioning in their rooms, are firm that some rooms, all rooms in the Olympic Village, won't have televisions. They can't watch the games. There is more. In a report released this week by the World Anti-Doping Agency, an independent commission mentioned evidence that several million dollars in sponsorship money reportedly paid by Japan to the International Association of Athletics Federations may have swayed then-IAA chief Lamin Diak to favor Tokyo's bid for the 2020 Summer Olympics. The report, a follow-up to the Commission's November findings on widespread doping and corruption in Russia's athletic program, alleges conflicts of interest in world track and field under the former IOC member Diak and misconduct ranging to criminal acts of conspiracy and bribery. A footnote of the report mentions discussions between Turkish track officials and Diak's son, Khalil, describing 
competition between Istanbul, Madrid, and Tokyo for the 2020 Games, which ended up being awarded to Japan. Summarizing that Turkey lost Diak support because they did not pay sponsorship monies of $5 million either to the then-burgeoning Diamond League, which was a um, track and field league, or to the IAAF. According to the transcript, the Japanese did pay such a sum. That is the end of the footnote. The commission did not dig into the matter further as it was not within the purview of their investigation. They did approach Interpol said a Tokyo spokesperson. The note in the report is beyond our understanding. The games were awarded to Tokyo because the city presented the best bid, said Hikariko Ono. Like Yoko, but without the screaming. Tokyo's bid was about Japan's commitment to address issues around the integrity of sport. Well, you could interpret that one of two ways. And back to Rio, Olympic fans have been warned there will be no hospital beds for them if they get sick during Rio 2016. A cash shortage, mentioned earlier, has plunged the city into a health care crisis, according to the British newspaper The Telegraph. Some major hospitals have been forced to close their doors. Even the most seriously ill patients cannot be admitted because of a funding shortfall that means a daily deficit of 150 beds. Please send beds. Union leaders say the state of Rio de Janeiro was not prepared for the extra burden of the Olympics which is predicted to bring as much as a million extra people to the city. Didn't they know it was coming? It's like the airplane, when you when your airplane lands at an airport early and they scramble, or on time even, and they then, then you sit on the tarmac because they don't have a gate. Didn't they know we were coming? Jorge Darce, president of the doctor's union, said, we are really in a very serious situation in which there is not the slightest possibility of a short-term solution. It is impossible, he says, for doctors in Rio to stay quiet given the possibility that a, um, the possibility that a million people will arrive in our state. Our objective is not to stop people coming, but to make sure those who no- come know that there will not be facilities when they fall sick in Brazil, unquote. Dr. Darje warned that foreign tourists would be particularly susceptible to tropical illnesses such as dengue fever. And the recent outbreak of Zika virus, which is carried by the same mosquito. That's a versatile mosquito. Last week, an emergency cabinet announced it will draft an extra 2,400 health professionals to bolster the public health care system in Rio after the local government declared a state of emergency. The federal government announced immediate extra funding of about $10 million Two state hospitals have been taken over by the city. The authorities have blamed the funding crisis on the drop in oil prices. So, pay more at the pump if you want health care in Rio. Isn't globalization wonderful? The doctors' union, by the way, said such reasons were unacceptable. It's all unacceptable when it's the Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. Wow. That is one vol- that is one versatile mosquito though. I have to hand it hand it to it.
And what to it? And what? How do you hand something to a mosquito? Now. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. News of inspectors general, ladies and gentlemen, for your listening, whatever. Veterans who are seeking... This is a this is a healthcare kind of a dominated uh, show so far. Veterans seeking urgent care at the VA hospital in Montgomery, Virginia, spent too much time in the emergency room, according to the Inspector General for Veterans Affairs. Non-mental health patients spent an average three and a half hours in the emergency room. I hope they got a lot of magazines. Mental health patients spent twice that long. That'll teach them. The um, central Alabama, no, Montgomery, Alabama, sorry, not Virginia. Too many Montgomerys in the United States, don't you think? The uh, central Alabama veterans health care system did not meet the VA's timeliness measures, according to the IG. VA facilities are considered fully satisfactory if fewer than 10% of their emergency room patients are there less than six hours, and exceptional if fewer than 5% are there less than six hours. They're, the bar is pretty high in the VA hospital system, apparently. The uh, Montgomery emergency room did not meet either standard for about the last four or five years. The extended ER stays were due to patients waiting for admission to the hospital, undergoing treatment, or awaiting transfer to another facility for radiology or ultrasound services. According to the inspector general, during the week of the audit, 4% of the patients who arrived at the emergency room left before they were seen by medical staff. Other stuff to do. You know? I got health care. I got I gotta get well, but I also gotta go to the grocery store. Something. Gotta do something else. Um this is um higher than the acceptable standard of people leaving before they see medical staff, according to the uh, inspector general. Fewer than 3% of patients leaving without being seen is considered fully satisfactory, in case you were wondering. Fewer than, 4%, fewer than 1% is exceptional. The uh, Montgomery Veterans Hospital met the fully satisfactory level for only one month during the last five years. Never met the exceptional level. One thing you can say about that hospital, it's consistent. The United States has spent nearly half a billion dollars in five years developing Afghanistan's oil gas and minerals industries and has little to show for it according to the special inspector general for afghanistan reconstruction the cigar s-i-g-a-r the project's failings the result of poorly planned programs he likes his alliteration inadequate infrastructure there you go and a challenging partnership with the afghan government that's uh, the latest report from the cigar the finding comes after some 200 reports from the Inspector General have detailed inefficient, unsuccessful, or downright, downright wasteful reconstruction projects. So we're winning, right? Let's see if the Taliban can do better. A recent analysis of um, his reports found that there have been at least $17 billion in questionable spending. Yeah, we've got that on us. The United States Agency for International Development and a Pentagon task force were in charge of developing a so-called extractive industry in Afghanistan, basically a system for getting precious resources out of the ground and to the commercial market. 
Seagar denounced both USAID and the Defense Department for their failures to coordinate. Really, the Defense Department? You're kidding. And to ascertain the ability of Afghans to sustain the project. Where have we heard this before? We, when, if we build it, they will let it fall apart. Uh, in fact, when international aid stopped supporting the Afghan office responsible for oversight of the petroleum and natural gas industries, two-thirds of that office's staff were fired. Well, where's the money? Goodbye. Pilots are so used to using automation technology in the cockpit. These are professional you know, airline pilots. Experts are now worried that some of them lack the skills to manually fly planes. So let's get those self-driving cars on the road, shall we? That concern, not about the cars, but about the planes, was summarized by the Inspector General of the U.S. Department of Transportation. He took the FAA to task, saying the agency does not know how many pilots are capable of actually taking the controls if their electrical systems fail them. That would be that would be nice to know, wouldn't it? While airlines have long used automation safely to improve efficiency and reduce pilot workload, several recent accidents, including a July 2013 crash of Asiana Airlines Flight 214, have shown that pilots who typically fly with automation can make errors when confronted with an unexpected event or transitioning to manual flying. This is uh, according to the Inspector General's report to the FAA. He goes on uh, to report that ASEAN Airlines Flight 214 crashed while the pilots were attempting a landing at San Francisco International Airport. The NTSB determined the crew's reliance on automation was a contributing factor. Quote, we've recommended that pilots have more opportunity to practice manually flying the aircraft, said Robert Sumwalt, who was a pilot for 30-plus years before joining the uh, National Transportation Safety Board, pointing to the issues raised by his own agency. The FAA responded to the Inspector General's letter, saying they have a commitment to enhance training requirements. So um, just looking forward, when we get those self-driving cars, Soon enough, the NTSB will recommend that uh, we make sure that people who own self-driving cars just, you know, get sufficient training in manually driving the cars just in case. Don't you think? I do. News of Inspectors General, ladies and gentlemen, it is a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. You lie like it's your sacred duty. I beg for trouble. Like a prayer Can't help mistaking pain for beauty Oh, my angel Of despair You let me hold you just to show me Could ache when you're not there. Why waste the time to get to know me? Oh, my angel of 
From London, this is Le Show, and now, the Apologies of the Week.
Well, first of all, we have uh, Senator Ted Cruz in the uh, Republican presidential debate earlier uh, this week, this, this past week. There was a moment when uh, Senator Cruz accused his leading opponent in the um, presidential primary, Republican pri- presidential primary so far, Donald Trump, of having so-called, what, what uh, Cruz called, New York values. Uh, as you may surely be aware, Trump responded by uh, citing the heroism of uh, New Yorkers, first responders, and others uh, in the wake of the 9-11 disaster. And uh, supposedly, uh, Cruz, a Republican senator from Texas, was uh, was somewhat backfooted uh, by Trump's response. Uh, later, he was asked for an apology, and he delivered this one. I apologize to the millions of New Yorkers who've been lambed by liberal politicians in that state. And I apologize to all the cops and the firefighters and 9-11 heroes who had no choice but to stand and turn their back on Mayor de Blasio because Mayor de Blasio over and over again. Well, that's a, that's a good sound bite, doesn't it? Turn their backs on Mayor de Blasio, he said, because Mayor de Blasio had let them down. Anyway, that's the, the sardonic apology of Senator Ted Cruz. Uh, Volkswagen Chief Executive, Executive Matthias Mueller has apologized for cheating diesel car emissions tests during his first official U.S. visit since the scandal broke last September. Quote, we know that we have let down customers, authorities and regulators and the general public here in America. He, uh, the head of the German car maker said in even, an even phonier accent at a media reception. We are, I am truly sorry for that and I would like to apologize once again for what went wrong at Volkswagen. He said, our most important task in 2016 is to win back trust. It's not only our cars we have to fix, we have to repair our credibility, too. And uh, to that end, they're installing a, uh, a cheating device in their credibility. No, sorry. He uh, insisted, speaking to journalists after his speech, quote, we are not a criminal brand or group. Volkswagen made huge technical mistakes, he said, but had no intention to deceive the U.S. public or regulators. So why'd you put the so-called cheating device in, sir? It was just a happy accident. Metallica, the famed heavy metal band, has apologized to Sandman, a Canadian tribute band, after Sandman received a cease and desist letter from Metallica's attorney asking them to discontinue using Metallica's official stylized logos on or to identify or promote live musical performances through Facebook and YouTube. That's the uh, verbiage of the letter. Said Metallica in a statement, We hear that the tribute band is a little upset with us, and with a little digging, we figured out why. It turns out a certain letter was delivered to Sandman that neither we nor our management were aware of. Lucky for us, the band was kind enough to post it for us to see. And it turns out we have a very overzealous attorney who sent this letter without our knowledge. We have a long history of not only enjoying tribute bands, we started as one. Sandman should file the letter in the trash. I'm continuing to quote Metallica, something I barely do. We've spoken to Sandman's Joe Toronto, and it's all good. Keep doing what you're doing. We totally support you. In the meantime, our attorney can be found at SFO Airport catching a flight to go permanently ice fishing in Alaska. The Toronto told Rolling Stone Metallica drummer Lars Ulrich called him to personally apologize. 
He gave me and the band his full blessing to continue on as we were, said the Toronto. They wanted to continue paying tribute to Metallica with their full blessing and approval. This is not the first time Metallica has clashed with other parties over infringement issues. In January 1999, the band sued Victoria's Secret after it sold a lipstick line dubbed Metallica. The lingerie company ended up settling with the band. Hmm. That's all I can say. Hmm. To be continued. Air Force officials in Georgia, I believe that's the United States, Georgia, have apologized for using an image of Martin Luther King Jr. to advertise a gun shoot. The 78th Support Squadron put out posters bearing the Nobel Peace Prize winner's image for a, quote, fun shoot, unquote, on the holiday that celebrates his birth. Not kidding. Right here. Right here on the page. Right here. Robbins Air Force, this is uh, Robbins Air Force Base's Leroy Minus. Oh, come on. I just read him. Leroy Minus told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that the flyer was, the flyer, that is to say, the poster, the leaflet, not the, not the Air Force pilot. The flyer was created by a marketing team. Oh, well then. That's, that's, that explains that. And apologize for associating the slain leader killed with target practice. Quote, we realized the inappropriateness of the advertisement several days ago and immediately began removing the flyer, the statement said, adding the Air Force did not want to cast the nonviolent resistance leader in a negative light. The statement said it was an honest mistake. <laughs> I wonder what a dishonest mistake would have been like in this situation. And that uh, those involved will receive remedial training. In what? More more questions than answers in that one. And the Canadian Olympic Committee has apologized to its employees and unveiled sweeping changes to workplace policies in the wake of a sexual harassment scandal that forced the former president of the Canadian Olympic Committee, Marcel Aubou, to resign. The board of directors also agreed to implement all the recommendations made in a tough third-party workplace review of its handling of the Obu affair that identified gaps in the area of human resources, systems, and processes. Yes, human resources has both systems and processes. Uh, the, it's clear from the report that the board and the senior leadership team could have done more, and for that I apologize, said the Canadian Olympic president, Tricia Smith. We all own this and are truly sorry. We failed our employees. Obu, 68 years old, resigned last October amid allegations that he sexually harassed a female colleague. A week later, two other women came forward with allegations. Who does he think he is, Bill Cosby? Ladies and gentlemen, the Apology of the Week, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now, little news of Nice Corp. Nice people doing nice things. Uh, you are probably aware by now that uh, Rupert Murdoch, the head of Nice Corp, has announced plans to um, to marry Jerry Hall, former fashion model, longtime uh, companion of Rolling Stones frontman Mick Jagger. Uh, they actually got married fairly late in their relationship, uh, and then. The uh, marriage was ended, strangely enough, despite the fact that they'd been together for 
oh, probably a couple decades, ended by annulment. But, you know, it's Mick Jagger. Um, anyway, this would be uh, Rupert Murdoch's fourth marriage. You remember the one to Wendy, Wendy Deng. Uh, before that was Anna, who gave him the uh, two sons who are running his, uh, uh, well, in, in line to run his company, if, you know. And um, the first wife, who uh, gave him a, a daughter. Um, the uh, guy who wrote a biography, Rupert Murdoch, Michael Wolfe, wrote in uh, GQ that uh, apparently Jerry Hall, uh, who's been seen publicly with Rupert uh, for months now, um, cut her famous long blonde hair uh, at Rupert's behest. She said, I love a man with strong opinions. For, uh, Mick Jagger, Rupert Murdoch. Maybe not as different as you'd think. Well, they call me the honky-tonk foggy, but this geezer's getting ready to blow. I'm rocking my world nice and slow. I got me a rock and roll woman. Then I had a kind of hair. I know I look glum, but she's under my thumb. Wild horses couldn't end this affair. Refined sugar, I know you're bad for me. Refined sugar, but you're my next destiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she had the height and the beauty. The power and greed. She said, Can you give me shelter? I said, You can get what you need. She's a Siamese cat of a girl. I'm a man of wealth and taste. It's a drag getting old, but not to sound cold. A body's a terrible thing to waste. Refined sugar, I know you're bad for me. Refined sugar, I won't put you on page three. Silver. She makes a grown man cry in bed. She said, when I gave her the diamond, keep fidelity in your head. I'll be like a little red rooster when we walk down the aisle, arm in arm. We'll honeymoon in carriages 
when it comes to marriages. The fourth time is the charm. Refined sugar. I know you're bad for me. Refined sugar. You're what I take with tea. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? Dayline Salt Lake City, University of Utah lab experiments found that when temperatures get warmer, wood rats suffer a reduced ability to live on their normal diet of toxic creosote. That sounds like a bad thing. That's their diet, suggesting global warming may hurt plant-eating animals. The study adds to our understanding of how climate change may affect mammals in that their ability to consume dietary toxins is impaired by warmer temperatures says the senior author. You see, not all, not all animal diets are as toxic as those of wood rats and other rodents that eat plants like creosote bushes or juniper. Most mammals eat some toxins in their diet, not just humans. See, we're just trying to be like wood rats. Thank you, chemical industry. In an ongoing evolutionary battle, plants involve chemical defenses against being eaten. Animals involve, evolve liver enzymes or other ways to overcome or avoid plant toxins. Over 40% of all existing mammals eat only plants, like your elephant, your giraffe. Many more eat some plants, like me. Most plants produce toxins, so the majority of plant-eating plant animals eat toxic compounds. This may become more difficult to deal with as the climate warms says the author. Animals that contain diets with toxic plants, animals with diets that contain toxic plants include rabbits, pikas, marmots, possums, deer, moose, elk, bighorn, sheep, horses, and cows. Any free-range domestic animal will face plants with toxins. No, plants don't have faces. Listen more carefully. First Nations, that's what the Canada calls what we call Native Americans, uh, their catch of fish could decline by nearly 50% by 2050, according to a new study examining the threat of climate change to the food and economic security of indigenous communities along coastal British Columbia in Canada. Climate change is likely to lead to declines in herring and salmon. They are among the most important species commercially, culturally, and nutritionally for First Nations, said uh, the uh, a graduate student who headed the study. This could have large implications for communities who've been harvesting these fish and shellfish for millennia. Time to eat some pork. While many studies examine the impact of climate change on large commercial fisheries, few focus on indigenous communities. This study finds that coastal First Nations communities could suffer economic losses between 6 and $12 million annually. If they use money, and that's probably Canadian dollars, the study was published in PLOS 1. 
The researchers modeled how climate change is likely to affect 98 culturally and commercially important fish and selfish shellfish species between 2000 and 2050. Most of, the 98 50, uh, most of the 98 species would be affected by climate change. They projected the fish would move away from their current habitats toward cooler waters nearer the pole, and that would uh, reduce the number of fish that could be uh, caught by the indigenous folks because they're generally confined to their traditional territories when fishing for food, as well as for social and ceremonial purposes. Maybe they got to get some frequent flyer miles on them. A new, not the fish, a new study by NOAA researchers suggests future warming of ocean waters off the northeastern U.S. may be greater and occur at an even faster pace than previously projected. Their findings, based on output from four global climate models of varying ocean and and atmospheric resolution, indicate that ocean temperatures in the U.S. northeast shelf is projected to warm twice as fast as previously projected, almost three times faster than the global average. That's going to make for some happy lobsters. You know, icebergs were bad news, giant icebergs, uh, for at least one ocean-going vessel we all know about. But they could be responsible for the processes that absorb up to 20% of the carbon in at least the southern ocean according to a new study. Researchers say meltwater from these vast blocks of ice release nutrients into the surrounding waters. That triggers plankton blooms, and the plankton absorb carbon dioxide. This is the first study of its kind. The authors examined satellite data between 2003 and 2013. This is in the journal Nature Geoscience. The... um, they tracked, via satellite, 17 giant icebergs through the open waters of the ocean surrounding Antarctica. We detect substantially enhanced chlorophyll levels over a radius at least four to ti- ten times the iceberg's length, which can persist for more than a month following the passage of a giant iceberg. These findings suggest this area of influence is more than an order of magnitude larger than that found for smaller Icebergs. So as icebergs calve, that would mean there would be fewer plankton. The giant icebergs had much bigger plumes of phytoplankton than we'd previously expected, say the authors. This means the role of giant icebergs in the Southern Ocean carbon cycle is bigger than we had previously suspected. The uh, phytoplankton behave like plants on land. In order to obtain the uh, energy to grow and reproduce, they do photosynthesis, absorbing carbon dioxide. When they die, they sink to the ocean floor, locking away the carbon they absorbed. If giant iceberg calving increases this century as expected, the negative feedback on the carbon cycle may become more important than we previously thought. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast now. Just uh, a few moments for uh, some news of our friend, the Adam. I got a note from Addy the Adam. He is watching rugby with uh, El Chipo. Meanwhile, the Department of Energy's long-term plan for dealing with material contaminated with plutonium and heavy elements from the U.S. weapons program is to bury it. Sure, underground in New Mexico at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant. 
The Energy Department plan aims to safeguard nuclear material for the next 10,000 years. But three Stanford nuclear scientists point out in a new article in the journal Nature that the plant was not designed to hold as much plutonium as is now being considered for disposal there. The site has seen two accidents in recent years. These accidents during the first 15 years of operation really illustrate the challenge of predicting the behavior of a repository over 10,000 years, says one of the authors. What's more, there's more plutonium proposed for disposal at that plant in the future as a result of treaties with the former Soviet Union to decrease the number of nuclear weapons by dismantling them. Um, the analysis proposing that it be diluted, diluted and disposed of at the plant in New Mexico does not include a revision of the safety analysis for the site, say the authors. They call on the Department of Energy to take another look at the safety assessment of the sites, particularly emphasizing the drilling activity in the oil-rich Permian Basin where the storage facility is located. The current regulatory period of 10,000 years, they write, is short relative to the 24,000-year half-life of plutonium-239, let alone that of its decay product, uranium-235, which has a half-life of 700 million years. We cannot be certain that future inhabitants of the area will even know the storage facility is there, they added. As, important, as a result, it's important to understand the impact of future drilling in the area. Clean, cheap, safe. Too, too, um, too long live to meter. It's our friend, the Atom. Oh, one more note about the atom. There's this uh, nuclear power plant in Florida called Turkey Point. It's uh, It's been drawing cooling water from the freshwater nearby. And the freshwater's been getting hot. As the uh, Florida Power and Light Company pump more than 100 million gallons a day of fresh water to cool the reactors, phosphorus and ammonia levels have shot up dramatically in the aquifer under Biscayne Bay. That's where the people in, 3 million people in South Florida get their drinking water from that aquifer. You're welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of Le Show. The program returns next week at the same time, oddly enough, over these same stations, even more oddly. 
Over NPR, worldwide throughout Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world, through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America. Via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, 7.490 megahertz shortwave. On the mighty 104 in Berlin. Around the world, via the internet. You've heard of it. At two different locations. Live and archived. Whenever you want it. At harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through stitcher.com. And available as a free podcast at Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and WWNO.org. And it'd be just like Jerry Hall being just a shout away if you'd agree to join with me then, will you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh huh. Typical show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago in exile, and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead, to Adrian Bodnam here at Global Radio in London, and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO in New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. Do you use email? The email address for this program. Hey, join the conversation. And, uh, a playlist of the music heard here on, as well as your opportunity to buy Cars I Talk t-shirts. People think I'm joking when I say that. I'm not. That's all available at harryshearer.com. And speaking of that conversation you're supposed to join, I'm on the Twitter at the Harry Shearer. In case you tuned in late, our quote for Martin Luther King Day comes from Memphis Grizzlies professional basketball forward Matt Barnes. Violence is never the answer, but sometimes it is. The show comes to you from Century Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from London. <laughs>